How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. You're listening to Michael Easley in context. In today's episode, Michael is teaching from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 25. We are in the book of 1 Peter, so if you have a Bible, find your way there to 1 Peter. This is an interesting passage. It's been uh, both fun and, and unfun to study for this message. Uh, pain and suffering are intractable questions for many people. The why of pain can be a maddening thing, whether it's uh, emotional pain, physical pain. Um, when we hurt, things stop. When we hurt, it's the constant distraction. Whether it's uh, some diagnosis of a health issue, whether it's emotional pain, whether it's loss, um, sometimes it feels like our wounds are incurable. We can't quite heal them. As Westerners, our goal is to eliminate pain. It's to reach for the ibuprofen, either literally or metaphorically. If there was a spiritual ibuprofen, I would give it out to you. Uh, we have people that, of course, can't find help in traditional medicine. So there are countless kinds of oils and diets and plant-based approaches and acupuncture and chiropractors and, and different modalities of physical therapy and light therapy. and oh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, we are trying to anesthetize ourselves to find some comfort. It is interesting that we have, as Westerners, almost an abhorrence to pain and suffering. And yet the biblical uh, line on it is very different. The biblical theological framework of pain and suffering is not joyful all the time. In fact, much of it is not answered. Um, We are, however, called to live in spite of pain. We're called to press on. We're called to be of good courage. And this passage tonight is a culmination of a lot of what Peter has been teaching us so far. Um, The simple line is, Christ is your example. Christ is my example when it comes to suffering. That sounds cliche. It sounds uh, patently boring. But Christ is your and my example for how we approach suffering and pain. And as we see what Peter writes, I hope it will open up your thinking a bit as it has mine on how we approach pain and loss, emotional, physical, all kinds of different aspects of the struggles that we have of life. Now, Christ is our example, yet we cannot do what Christ did. So that's, it's one thing to follow someone in a profession, to follow them in an instrument, to follow them in art. It's different to follow Christ, because after all, he is the God-man. After all, his death, the efficacy of what he did is far different than ours. But nevertheless, Peter is going to explain to us uh, this is how we, f- how we live with pain. Let me read a couple of uh, quotes from I. Howard Marshall, what he says about this little passage. We're just going to look at verses 21 to 25 in 1 Peter 2. And these verses, although they're very short, I intended to go much further, 
you can't really hurry through it. Marshall writes, in many ways, this paragraph, which stands virtually at the center of the letter, is its theological center. Peter is presenting far more than an example. He briefly tells of the story of Christ who suffered for you and develops a doctrine of Christ's death that shows how Christians can be transformed to live for righteousness. And I couldn't agree more with Marshall. This is the centerpiece of the little letter. It's the center theologically. It's almost the center from a stylistic and structural standpoint of the letter. And so that catches our attention. Um, It applies to a wide audience, to the ones who are reading it, and to you and me. It still has application today. Because Christ suffered, you and I are going to suffer. Because Christ suffered, we have an example. Because Christ suffered, we can endure and we can face it if we understand what Christ has done for us. That's the high message of this passage. Now, the structure of these verses, verses 21 to 25, strongly suggests it was probably a song. It was probably one of the earliest uh, Christian songs written. And sometimes uh, hymnology in the New Testament, we we miss it. We see some of Paul's prayers. But because we can't all read Greek and because our English translators are burdened with how do you take a, a dead language effectively and turn it into a language that you and I can read and understand, that's a big bridge. I've talked about that many times. Um, we miss some of that. But what I would say is theology is not lost in brevity. In these few verses, the scope of what Peter accomplishes make for good lyric, and you can see why many believe it was an early Christian hymn. Um, it references Isaiah 53. And I've noted that earlier in the series. This is the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant, the anointed one of God. This is often called the rabbinic torture chamber. To read Isaiah 53 and even to have a cursory knowledge of who this Jesus is, is a real head-scratcher if you don't think Isaiah 53 is speaking of the Christ. It's a very problematic passage for rabbis who have any knowledge of a Messiah. And so they look at Isaiah 53 as the personification of Israel, not of a person who was, who was Messiah, who was to come, who, is, who came, and who is Messiah. Um, this passage is, they use some heavy language in the discourse to explain what it is about. But to say it simply is to persuade an audience. This, the way Peter writes this, because of the hymn hints we're going to see because of the structure of it because of the theology of it he's trying to persuade an audience and if you step back a little bit when it comes to suffering i need convincing when it comes to pain and trouble i need somebody to help me understand that it's not just reaching for ibuprofen or opioids or uh, treatment or surgery there's a lot more going on here and that lends a lot to the passage even though it is so brief so, so let's look at chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 21 to begin with. Christ is our example when it comes to suffering. It's very straightforward. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, if you to glance up to chapter 2, verse 9 for just a moment, you'll see a word where Peter says we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 9, we're called for this very purpose that we might inherit a blessing. Peter uses this word called only three times in his epistle. The second time we're looking at here today, you've been called for this purpose. 
the word kaleo has a number of broad scope meanings. Uh, you can call somebody to supper. You can call them on the phone. You can call them for an appointment. You can call them make an appointment. Biblically speaking, the call has to be defined by how it's used. We can talk about a call of salvation that goes out to all people, that all are called, all are offered salvation, but only some will respond to that call, obviously. Then we would argue there's a call to being a prophet, which is very different. They're going to be called to be a prophet in some respects, whether they want to or not. Think of Moses, think of the reluctant prophets, think of Jonah. They're called to something. And then I would argue there's a call to discipleship. So there's three generic calls in the Bible. The prophet, the open, broad call to salvation, and a call to be a disciple. People would differ with me on that. I can't be bulldogmatic, but those are the fields of meaning, the way the word tends to be used. Peter says, you have been called, so he's got to be talking to believers for this purpose, because Christ suffered for you. This isn't a call to salvation. This isn't a call about being a prophet. It could be a call to discipleship, but the way Peter's using it suggests to me, you're called to suffer. Now, I don't like this. I don't like where it's going to begin with, but we have to follow the text, not what we think or feel. In chapter 2, verse 21, this call involves suffering. We cannot say everyone will suffer unjustly, but I think I can say at this chapter of my life, everyone's going to suffer. It might not always be because of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It might not always be because we made bad decisions. We might get off uh, easily sometimes. I had a dear friend, one of my mentors, and he would often tell me, Michael, I've really not had much trouble in my life. I just don't know too many people like that. It seems rare that you're not going to struggle, that you're not going to suffer. Now, it might disappoint some people, no explanation is given in Scripture for unjust suffering. Period. There is no chapter or verse that's going to answer your why. Why did this happen to me? Why does it happen to my wife? Why did it happen to my child? Why did I have to bury a child? To me, the most egregious thing a person ever goes through the pain of bearing a child. Period. Hands down. There's nothing worse. Why does this happen? I can't give you definitive whys. I can give you frameworks but I can't tell you why. This passage is not going to tell you why. This passage is going to tell you what. So what Peter is saying here, there's no explanation for unjust suffering, but he's going to tell you, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. We'll stop right there. He suffered for you. This is a generic. It's a summary of all his sufferings in life down to the, his beatings and mockings and crucifixion. Don't miss what Peter writes. He suffered for you, implication he died. This isn't talking about the harassment he faced. This is talking about his death. The word here Peter uses for suffering is pasco, pasco. And if you've been around Christian circles or even uh, satyrs, you might know the term paschal or paschal lamb. That's the picture that we get the word suffering from. The pascha is the one who suffers. Peter uses it 12 times in his letter. It's not a hard letter to figure out. He's writing to people. We've talked about it many times. They live a place that's not their home. They're dispersed. They're suffering. They're being persecuted for the gospel. That's his audience. So 12 times he's going to mention that they suffer. Again, Marshall writes, The verb suffer throbs like a repeated refrain throughout the letter and colors everything that is said in that. What great language. 
It's, it throbs when you read it. It pounds through the letter. It is the same verb used in the gospel to refer to the death of Jesus. Now, Peter's not calling you to martyrdom here. I don't think that's his point. He's saying, if Christ suffered, who are you? Who am I to think we're not going to suffer? And he suffered for you. What he did leave you was an example, which is what we're going to get to. Christ suffered leaving us an example. Example is the word upogramos, upogramos. Upo being a prefix, gramos. What does gramos sound like? Grammar. It's, remember, English is a concoction of all kinds of their language, Germanic, Greek, Latin, a uh, little French thrown in there. It's, it's a junkyard language. So we bring all these words into English. And gramos is one we brought into grammar. It literally means writing. So why is the author, why does the word have significance? If Christ suffered, leaving us a writing example. Some of you are old enough. uh, Remember the stencils they had around the chalkboard when you were in school? And what were the stencils? The uppercase cursive and the lowercase cursive. And you had the big lines and the dotted lines. And you probably had a little book. That you, mine I remember was horizontal, it folded this way, and it had those same lines, and you had to draw your, your stylistic, your capital A, and then lowercase a, you had to do it over and over and over and over. You were doing an example. That's what the word means in Greek. You had an example on the board in front of you, and later on we had multiplication tables, and they were on the, there was an example. You do it just like it's up there. It's so funny because, I mean, when was that introduced for you? Third grade? Cursive, maybe somewhere in there. I was raised in parochial schools. I have nightmares about that. But uh, I, I remember the nuns teaching us how to write cursive and getting you know in trouble because they didn't do it right. My brother has like, I mean, he could do a, a stencil that would look just like the one on the chalkboard. His handwriting is, is exactly like the stencil. Mine has no semblance whatsoever of the stencil. That's just for free. Uh, but the, uh, the point was there was a accurate way to do something, follow the template. That's what Peter is saying here. Christ was our upogramos. You follow the example the way he did it. You follow his suffering the way he did it. He modeled it. You walked the same path he walked. The guides in life, if you go on a kayaking trip, a backpacking trip, a hunting trip, if you hire a fly fishing guide, what do you do? You follow him or her, her and do what they tell you to do in order to generally succeed or keep safe. It's the same principle. Christ has given us a upogramato so that we can follow him when, not if, we suffer. Upogramos, an example. Earl Richard writes, This verse draws an explicit connection between the addressees, those who are suffering and that of what Christ suffered. But it also insists that each suffering part is God's plan for the audience. For Christ's suffering was meant to provide them a pattern, a hupogramos, for their lives. If Jesus Christ had to suffer, who are you? Who am I to think we're not going to suffer? Now, our lives are not going to have the efficacy, meaning if we do what Jesus did, if we died a martyr's death, we wouldn't see people come to Christ by what we did, but what Christ has done, correct? So we don't have the efficacy. We don't have the effect. Nevertheless, operationally, how we live, not why we deal with suffering, but how we live is you follow this example. Now, the second part 
is an explanation. Suffering for you. This, this changes, it's a game changer to me. It's not just that he suffered and died and we should do it the way he did it. It's, no, this is for you. This was a plan and intent for you so that when you suffer, not if, when you suffer, this is how you endure it. Christ's suffering provides the ultimate motivation. Since the believer accepts the innocent suffering from God's approval and the vindication of glory. Well, verse 22. He who committed no sin, nor has any deceit been found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now, Peter's going to use three parallel clauses. Again, from our English, Greek to English, it's a little cumbersome. Let me see if I can help you. These are very concrete ways of how we deal with suffering. In verse 22, 23, and 24, if we all could read Greek, the first word in, let's call it a sentence, they're not technically, but let's just say they were sentences. And those three verses is the exact same pronoun. It's the word, it, it's roughly hos, O-S in, in Greek, which means who or which. Now, I'll only go down this road for just a minute to explain something to you. It's so obvious in the structure of the Greek New Testament, but it's lost in our English versions. You just can't see it very readily. I read through all kinds of English Bibles, and the only one I came close to was Young's literal translation. You may have never heard of it. If you have software, it's online, it's free. But listen to what Young's literal translation did with this passage, and I'll emphasize the words. Verse 22, who did not commit sin, nor was guile found in his mouth? Who, verse 23, being reviled, was not reviling again, suffering, was not threatening, and was coming himself to him who judges righteously. That's where the literal gets cumbersome. Verse 24, who, our sins himself, did bear in his body upon the tree, that to the sins having died, to the righteous we may live, by whose stripes we are healed. I know it's a lot, but that's a literal cumbersome rendering, which is why our English translations smooth out the reading so it makes sense to our English brain. Make sense? Follow me? So simply said, verse 22, 3, and 4, if we could do a literal wooden translation, would all start with the word who. It's a little cumbersome because it doesn't, it's not smooth reading, but that's how it would start. So in other words, it's a very easy thing to see with the eye when you're looking at something. If you read a a song in every, the first word all starts with A. The Psalms do this. They use the, the Hebrew alphabet. All the words start with the letter A or Dalit or Gimbal. They go down the, the alphabet. So it was easy to remember and they could see the structure. Well, the first parallel is taken from Isaiah 53, this torturous passage. Verse 9, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It's just a simple parallel. He's saying on the one hand, he suffered unjustly, but he didn't sin. He suffered unjustly. And he didn't say anything. Just stop right there for a second. He suffered unjustly, didn't sin. He suffered unjustly, and kept his mouth shut. That's all the parallel saying. The second parallel in verse 23, who being reviled, he did not revile in return. So when Christ is verbally abused, when he's mocked, when he's, uh, he didn't respond in kind. Now, this got me thinking, um, this is a lot more than self-control on Jesus' part. 
Um, how many times did Jesus dismantle his audience? The woes, the tax, the question about the taxes, uh, the question about, uh, you know, th- this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, a render to, what, what do we do with the paying taxes, seizures, is that lawful? I mean, at some point, the scribes and Pharisees, you had to see some humor in this going by. Who thought of that crazy idea? Who thought about trying to debate him? Because we get destroyed verbally. So being true from our gospel account, Christ could have readily reviled them. Just with literary genius, he could have destroyed his audience. But being reviled, he did not revile in return. The third clause in verse 23, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. The first two parallels are real easy to see in verse 22. He, he was suffered unjustly, but he didn't sin. He didn't speak. The second one, he was reviled, but he didn't revile. Easy to see. The third one's a little more uh, interesting. While suffering, he didn't say any threat. What's Peter saying here? Envision Jesus being uh, beaten with the flagellum, uh, being mocked, being spun around, crown on his head, nailed to the cross. You guys, you're going to get it. You're going to experience judgment like you don't know for what you're doing to me. He could have said that. He's the God man after all, but he doesn't. Rather, Peter says he didn't just suffer quietly. Here it says he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. No parting shots. No, you're going to get truth later. No condemning them. By the way, did you catch the repetition of not? He did not sin. No deceit. He did not revile. No threats. When Christ suffered unjustly, this is what he didn't do. This isn't complicated. What do we typically do we suffer unjustly. We joust back and forth. We get into a verbal argument. We take people on. It's precisely what Jesus doesn't do when he suffers. I don't know about you. This is extremely convicting to me. This is what comes, with, let's just call it by nature. When we're accused unjustly, when we're reviled unjustly, we're mocked. I'm gonna, let me set you straight. That's not true. That's our nature. And we can do it with all the right motivations. I'm not saying there's never a time to do it. What Peter's saying here is when Jesus suffered, he didn't do those things. That's our example. I don't know about you, that's pretty heavy. He didn't defend. He didn't state his case. He didn't do these things. That's the example. Set aside the fact that these are just convictions. Uh, and, and you and I could say, okay, I'm, I'm going to choose not to do that. It's a fool's errand. In the flesh, we're going to fail. You know that. This has to be a work of God's spirit in our life. If the Christian life was a set of do's and don'ts, those of us who are self-disciplined would be really good Christians. That's called uh, hubris and arrogance and pride and legalism. So it's got to be the Spirit transforming work in it. So when the Scripture uh, convicts you or annoys you or gives you that knot in the stomach or that, you know, however, the back of the neck, whatever it is, that, you know, you go, ooh, I don't like that. That's something you and I have to pay attention to. What does that mean? How do I respond to that? Um, the Scripture 
I've said this many times, doesn't merely tell us stop doing something without telling us to start doing something. And Peter does it so masterfully in his little epistle. The positive injunction here is that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So the question becomes, do you and I trust him no matter the circumstance? Do you and I trust him when, I'm, when we're suffering? And let's use some English to heap this on. Keep on going and trusting him no matter what. You, it's like the Energizer Bunny. It's an annoying thing. It never stops. It just keeps on keeping on, keeping on, keeping on trusting him. It's an ongoing activity for you and me. Do you continue to trust him even when you're suffering, even when you're reviled, even when you're treated unjustly? Do you, like Christ, entrust yourself to him who judges righteously? That's the, that's the sort of the, the, the bonus part of this verse is, He's going to do a better job of it than you and I are going to do, making things right. And frankly, I don't want to be left with that burden. Because I'm too jaundiced in my view of life to be judge and jury. You need a righteous judge, a righteous judge who always does the right thing the right way. Always. That's impossible for a human. Do you and I keep entrusting him when we suffer? A growing believer keeps on trusting that there is a perfect, righteous judge who will make things right. Not just in the end, when I'm dead and gone, but that there's a progression here. Jesus was able to go to the cross because he knew God would be righteous. And I don't know that you and I can ever comprehend this. He was just as human as you and I are when he faces those experiences. He's fully God, but he's fully man. He wasn't somehow, because he had a little bit, you know, the, bad theology here. He had a little of God in him. That's bad theology. He, fully God and some and man, full, and some God, he could do things. No, he's fully man. I don't think we see our Christ this way. He's fully God and fully man, but he suffered. He felt pain. He felt fear. He was troubled, the scripture records. And so... The summary is pretty simple. Christ's example in suffering, he doesn't sin. There's no deception out of his mouth. When he's slandered, he's silent. And he keeps trusting his father. No sin, suffers in silence, trusts his father. Now, I hesitate to give you some of this. I'm going to call this written in pencil. And I don't even want to use the word theology, but it's the only word I can go to. It's written in pencil theology that I've been thinking about through this whole study. Um, it's an uncomfortable thought. So, but you're mature people, and you can, you, you know, on, on Easley's heresies, you can just erase them. Don't worry about it. This might be an Easley heresy. Um, if I think that God is going to justly judge all of our sins, is that fair? If you're a Christian, He judged them in the personal work of Christ, right? So there was a just judgment of our sins. If God is that constant, that he's going to always judge justly and righteously. When we suffer, is it an infinitesimal measurement of what Christ suffered? So when you're pained, when your hows aren't, how questions are answered, when, when the diagnosis can't be treated, when the, when the pain is emotional or physical or chronic or relentless, I call it the constant distraction when all you can focus on is the pain. Is that an infinitesimal reminder of what Christ suffered in our behalf 
in our place instead of us. I'm not sure I can say it bulldogmatically, but I'm pretty sure it's true. The danger of that statement, and those of you who know the word well, you're already there. The danger of that is thinking, or yeah, I'm suffering this for Jesus' sake. That's dangerous territory. What I'm asking is, is there a way to look at suffering and disappointment and pain and injustice and horrible things that happen to people we love and so forth and so on to say, uh, this is an infinitesimal, an infinitesimal taste of what Jesus endured, and then I'll put the icing on the cake. It's the fellowship of suffering. I don't like the fellowship of suffering, but it's taught in Scripture. That there's some connection that we have with Jesus' suffering. I don't know. I don't know how you parse this, but I talk to enough people in enough pain, physical and emotional, that have no, no relief. The why question doesn't bother me. I've shared this before. The how question plagues me. How do you live faithfully when it stinks? How do you live faithfully when it's horrible? I hope you all had a chance to watch the interview that we did with Johnny Erickson Tata. And so much pain, and yet she was happy. It just drives me crazy she can say that. Drives me nuts. I think that is the fellowship of suffering. And I don't think there's any other way it can be explained. Well, Christ is our example in suffering. Further, and this is going to be anticlimactic when we read it, Christ bore our sins. We know this too well. This little passage, this little early hymn is teaching two things. When you suffer, suffer like Jesus did. Why? How? Because he is the one who bore our sins. Verse 24 again goes to Isaiah 53. Peter recalls from there. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Some of your versions say tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds or stripes you were healed. The guiltless one, the perfect one, the innocent one who suffered willingly, he himself bore your sins and by that were healed. That's the theology. Bore his sins on our body. Some versions say he carried our sins. That's a little weak in my, in my view of English. He carried them on the cross. No, he bore them on the cross. He bore the brunt and the weight. He took away our sins. He took the burden and atoned for it. And, you know, our picture, did you all see the Mel Gibson's version of the passion? Whether you do not, it's up to you. Um, let, let's just say that Mel captured the brutality of the crucifixion. Let's say it accurately. Um, what we saw in the physical perspective is immeasurable from the spiritual perspective of his son being separated from his father. And I think that's why the excruciation, the term excruciating pain, comes from the Latin crucifix. The words are related. This excruciating, horrific death was to illustrate, humanly speaking, that's the best I can explain it to you, God's saying, is the brutality Jesus experienced physically. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't even register what he felt spiritually. The pain he endured being separated from his father. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, the fully human part was in brutal pain. I don't think that's what he's complaining about. I really don't. Because he left heaven's glory. He had a relationship with God that only he has. In some way, he kenosis, he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. Paul tells, tells us in Philippians, we'll never understand that because we can't, we can't comprehend who he is and what he's done. The distracting, 
discouraging, burdensome, uh, brutal pain that we experience, this temporary pain, at best, his wounds brought an eternal healing. We have temporary pain, but his wound brings an eternal healing. Wounds here literally are the mark left by a whipping or a flagellarium where the Romans, you know this, they would use a, a leather uh, pieces that were braided and they would put uh, glass and bone fragments in the end of those. So when they whip and they pull, it would tear flesh. It wasn't just like a whip leaving welts. It actually would rip the flesh open. And that's where we get the word stripes in the King James English. So it's the it's the the stripe or the wound left by the beating, by his wounds we are healed. Uh, this is a picture of the atonement. It's a picture of him bearing the weight of our sin and God's wrath coming down on him and punishing that sin on his only son because he is the only one that could be the guiltless substitute. So we get the simple, by his wounds you're healed. It's cliche. It shouldn't be. It should never be. Christ's atonement, Peter explains, is a negative that we might die to sin, then a positive, live to righteousness. It's not just stop doing something. Yeah, die to sin, but now live differently. And there's the motivation. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Uh, Peter ends this little pericope. I'm going to suggest it's probably an early Christian hymn, and he uses a phrase that's all too familiar to the audience. Every person in the Middle East understood shepherds. Everyone understood sheep. Everyone understood straying sheep. This would be like about those of you who are in a traffic jam on the freeway. Those of you who are caught in, you know, it's, it's a metaphor everyone understood. Um, interestingly, Israel was always known as sheep, as lost, as stubborn, as misled, as misguided, as obstinate, as stupid, as wandering. Uh, it's more like here being going astray or gone astray or being misled. But now, Peter says, you have returned. The word returned fails a little bit. It's more that you've turned around. You, you, you were going your own misled, misguided way. Now you've turned around and you've come to Christ. We could call it a conversion statement. Jesus is described here as a shepherd, which is a familiar word, but also a guardian. And I may be wrong here. I did my homework best I could. I couldn't find any other reference internally or extra-biblically where Jesus is referred to as a guardian. Interesting. It's the word episkopos in our, English, in our Greek text, which all of you know. Two words for the office of elder, presbyteros and episkopos. Presbyteros means typically an older man. Episkopos, epi, over, skopos, looking at. An overseer. So episkopos becomes bishops in our modern-day language, and uh, presbyteros becomes the presbyter. And Presbyterians have a session, and Anglican and other churches have bishops. They're overseers of a flock. That's where it comes from. So here we have a shepherd, a very familiar term, but he's a guardian. Interesting the way Peter writes it, guardian of your soul, not just a guardian of life. Um, if I could sum it up, I would say our ultimate healing requires an ultimate remedy. Not very exciting phrase, but that's the best I can do. Our ultimate healing requires an ultimate remedy, and the ultimate remedy is the ultimate suffering. So it comes full circle. You and I want to know, 
why we suffer and how to get rid of it. What God is telling us through the pen of Peter is, now I'm going to tell you how. You do it like Christ did. You do it without sinning. You do it trusting him. You do it faithfully. And as you do that, you're going to find ultimate healing, not temporary healing. We're all in the temporal commodity. I want pain to go away now, not when I'm dead. I don't get to make that decision. When I was uh, young, my father, uh, the typical depression dad, probably some of you had familiar, similar uh, homes, but we fixed everything. And so we worked on cars, and that was just what we did. We, uh, you became a mechanic if you were a boy in the Easley home. So we worked on all our cars, and we changed water pumps and did brakes and whatnot. And even if dad hadn't done it, we figured out how to do it. It was the day of manuals and going to the auto parts store. There was no Internet. And so uh, between high school and college, I became a mechanic, went to school for a while, was a diesel mechanic for a couple of years. I worked on cars on and off all through college and grad school, making a little money, and um, until they got too complicated where I just paid somebody else to do it. Um, but but when the, it pays off in life in so many ways, not only work ethic that my father taught me, but when we had children, we helped each of our kids get a car, and which I'm sure... Most of them have done. And so you, you're helping them get a car. And you don't buy them a brand new car. when, Even if you live in Williams County, don't buy your child a brand new car when they're 16. God help you. Get them a junker because they're going to bump a wreck. You know, it's, it's going to happen. One of our kids, I think it was 11 days after they had their car, they had a really good wreck. Um, so it's going to happen. And you just got to be prepared for that. Don't get mad. It happens. Um, so, you know, you, take, you help them. You help them try to get. Well, I can't transfer what I know about cars, and cars have changed, so it's hard to transfer. So, well, one of my kids, I forget which one, I truly do, we were going to the mechanic to get some work done on the car because it wasn't passing inspection. And um, I said, I know it needs brakes, so I want you to tell me if you can turn the rotors or not. I don't want to replace them, and I want you to put new pads on them. And so I get a call about an hour later with this list of like 20 things that have to be fixed on this car. Now, I understand the service writer. They're trying to make money. It's, in a, it's a sales world. I get that. I'm not mad at them. But I happen to know a little bit. I said, I brought it in to have the rotors turned, not replaced. And that, if it doesn't mean anything to me, it doesn't matter. And I don't want to fix all these other things. Well, you have to fix I said, no, you misunderstand. I don't have to fix anything on that car. I want my child to have good brakes. I don't care about the air conditioner. I don't care about these things right now. I may do that at some time but I'm not going to pour $2,700 into a car that's worth $4,000. I'm just not going to do it right now. Uh, and, and maybe I'll negotiate that with my kid. That's not your business. I need the brakes fixed. And, and there was one other thing that they brought up. I said, okay, I'll, that, that's a valid point. You can fix that too. It's not critical. But why am I telling this story? Because some of the things in life we need to fix and don't need fixing. And the thing that I obsess with, the thing that you obsess with, the rattle, the noise, the arthritis, let's get specific, uh, the forgetfulness, the, the cataract surgery and the trifocals and the other set of glasses I have to still use because the trifocals aren't good enough, and on and on this goes. Some of this stuff ain't fixable. How much more in your spiritual life? The, the West, unlike much of the Christian world, is obsessed with getting rid of pain. And believe me, I'm all for it. Our sin condition is eating us alive, and we're trying to take an ibuprofen so my neck doesn't hurt. One's eternal, one's temporal. You're bright people. 
You know this already. But we live in a horizontal rut, and it takes a while to get up and get our head up once in a while. Even though we live in a place that's not home, we're a distinct flock. Even though we're going to suffer, sometimes unjustly, sometimes because we're fallen creatures in a fallen world, how do you suffer? This passage is telling us you have an example. His name is Jesus Christ. He didn't sin. He didn't speak out of turn. He was silent when he was suffering the most, we might say, from a human perspective. Do as he did. That's the big message. Now, he didn't just leave us there, die a martyr's death. He says, and as you do this, understand, he saved your soul. He fixed what really needed fixing on your car, not the things you wanted fixing. He addressed the real issue. And these other issues we made into bigger issues. John Stott, who uh, was a voluminous writer in his time with the Lord now for several years, wrote a little book. Uh, it was called Authentic Christianity. I think it's out of print now. But there was a chapter in it called Why Do the Innocent Suffer? And I close with uh, just a short reading from this chapter called The God of the Cross. There are limits to the sphere in which the finite mind of man can work. Men may need to investigate the nature of disease, its cause, its incidence, its symptoms, and cure. But no laboratory will ever witness the discovery of the meaning or of its purpose. I would even believe that one of the reasons why God has not revealed the mystery to us is it would keep us proud mortals humble. Our broad horizons are so narrow to God. Our vast knowledge is so small to him. Our great brain is so limited in his sight. He says to us, as he said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you send forth lightning that may go here? And can you say, here we are? The only right attitude towards suffering is worship or humble self-surrender. Let me read that again. The only right attitude towards suffering is worship or humble self-surrender. This is not groveling and humiliation, but a sober humility. This is not to commit intellectual or moral suicide. It's to acknowledge the limits of our finite minds. This is in a word to let God be God and to be content to remain as mere men. There is reasonable too, this is reasonable too, when you have a revelation of God like Job's. But, says the critic, we have not. Wait a moment. We have, you know. We have had a better and fuller one. We are much more favored than Job. He only knew of the God of nature. We know of the God of grace. He only knew of the God of the earth and the sky and the sea. We know the God of Jesus. He only knew of the God of the crocodile. We know the God of the cross. If it was right and reasonable for Job to worship, it is much more reasonable for us, for we have seen the cross. Heaven is neither silent nor sullen. Heaven has been opened, and Christ has ascended. And God has revealed himself in the Christ of the cross. The cross is the pledge of God's love. 
Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.